New Thinking Allowed. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be talking about a crucible of consciousness. Specifically, we're referring to the Russell Square neighborhood in London. My guest is my good friend James Tunney, a Renaissance man, a poet, a painter, a, an attorney, a scholar. He is the author of two dystopian novels, Ireland, I Don't Recognize Who She Is, and Blue Lies September. He is also author of The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, and The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in a Dark Age of Scientism. James lives in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. I'm very happy to be with you once again. It's great to see you again, my friend. It's raining out here. Uh, or not raining, it's snowing uh, here. So um, I'll be out tomorrow on the sledge and I'm nearly able to be camouflaged at this stage in the snow. Uh, well, I'll be in the snow myself. It's snowing in Albuquerque. So uh, we ha under, we're under similar weather conditions here. Right now it's February 2021. Of course, this video will be available hopefully for years to come. We're going to talk about the idea of a crucible, a crucible of consciousness. And let's begin by defining what we mean by that. There are certain, you can see in a business context, for example, they study clusters and clustering. And the idea is fairly standard that certain places give birth to certain ideas, an efflorescence, an interaction of different forces that tends to help creativity and innovation. And there are certain places, for example, uh, the Bay Area, and you've discussed it in your recent interviews with Matthew Ingram, and uh, from all your experience of the Bay Area, it's certainly a cluster in terms of spirituality and ideas about physics and other things. So we get different forces coming out and interacting in strange ways. Edinburgh, at a certain stage, was another kind of cluster, uh, and I'm arguing that there was there's there's this cluster in uh, well there's a number of different clusters in London, but one in particular which I would center on on Russell Square. I kind of think of them as like acupuncture points on the planet. That's right. I I was thinking more in terms after listening to your interview with Stuart Hammeroff about the idea of the microtubule and in some way when you go and examine one of these clusters, you're entering into some some small uh, space of cosmic consciousness and you can see the interactions in a way that you don't. So we're looking at consciousness in, in a grander form, a grander orchestrated form. Now, I think one of the characteristics that needs to be addressed is that these clusters are going to contain a wide variety of inputs, some positive, some negative, and often uh, at odds with each other. Well, yes, and why I became particularly interested in, in the Russell Square area, and not least because I'm familiar with it, 
uh, because I, I studied in the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies right on Russell Square, uh, and I live nearby and have relations nearby. But the, the you can see there, my argument is that you can see not only the clustering effect, but a, a fissure, a tension between two different ideas of the world. And the, this in particular is relevant to the study of parapsychology and the study of spirituality and the relationship between science and spirituality and parapsychology. So what's interesting about the mix is we see all the different elements and they're mixing and interacting in different and unanticipated and unexpected ways. Now, I imagine that most tourists to London, like me, have been there because that's where the British Museum is located, and it's certainly uh, a stop-off point for virtually every tourist. That's right, but even for someone who walks through Russell Square every day, uh, who's very familiar with it, for, for Londoners uh, uh, even, the it, it may be difficult to be able to see the interaction of forces that are there, to interpret the ghosts, to interpret the various forces that interacted at that point, to remember that when we're in a landscape or an urban landscape, that there's a history to this, the psychogeography that we talked about before, esoteric geography, the idea that there are forces that operated in that crucible, that interacted, and that are still there to some extent today, and, and that the traces are still there, or maybe there in a, in a way which is more immediate than we perceive. So um, I think we have, to, we have to consider this when we're looking at places, because otherwise we're just looking at the appearance of something, the superficial dimension, and we have to go behind that to, to look at the deeper meaning. Well, what struck me in thinking about Russell Square is that it's so tiny. I mean, when we talk about the San Francisco Bay Area as a crucible, it certainly is, but it, it's an area of a circumference of maybe 50, 60 miles, I should say radius, not circumference. But Russell Square and, and that neighborhood is all walking distance. Yes. Um, I was thinking that if we imagine me and, and you we're sitting in Russell Square. We, we'll, we'll travel through space and time, Jeffrey. And we're sitting, maybe having afternoon tea, because apparently the concept of afternoon tea grew up in this area. So let me just tell you a bit about the area that we're in. Imagine we're sitting in this square, and it's, it's a kind of typical uh, London square. There's a, there's a number of squares around it. There's Tavistock Square and Bedford Square and Fitz, Fitzroy Square uh, a bit further away and Torrington Square, Brunswick Square Gardens. There's a number of squares around the place. But if you look back at the old maps, for example, there's a, a famous map of London, a 24-plate map uh, by John Rock in 1746. And at that stage, Russell Square wasn't there. What was there, where if we're sitting in the square and we looked south, we would see Bedford House. And Bedford House is associated with the Bedford Estate, and this area was generally associated with the Duke and Duchess of Bedford and the, the relevant marquee and titles that were associated with that family. And that those titles were generally held by the Russell family. So hence the name Russell Square. But if we're in 1746, so we're sitting, sitting in the same place, we're at the end of the gardens of Bedford House, which is no longer there. And that house looked up towards Highgate and towards Hampstead. 
And in a way, it's been a, an attractive view for, for a number of places. Queen Square was aligned as well with Hampstead and Highgate. And we've talked about that before in our talk on esoteric geography. It's very, very significant in the esoteric history of, of London. And I believe that that linkage, I believe, goes back to a, a, a possibly a Celtic link before other links like ley lines and that were were discovered or projected on, onto the map. But at that stage, we're on the edge of London and London hasn't expanded and overtaken us yet. And also at that period, remember that Swedenborg was in London at that era and he was having his mystical experiences just down the road. So he may have walked up here. Blake certainly later on would have walked up this uh, area and he said when he used to travel towards Hampstead when he came back home he'd be tired for a couple of days after those walks for some reason and he saw Jerusalem as being in this area after Russell Square he defined it in, in one of his works but the if we look at the maps later the city has engulfed and Russell Square was built in the early part of the 19th century and it became a place associated with lawyers and the legal profession and uh, the city grew out around it. And later on, the University of London became associated with, with, with the area. So as well as the, uh, the, the Bedford and, and the Russell family, the Bedford estate, who maintained their management and their input into the, the historic and contemporary dimensions of the, uh, of the estate or of the area, we had the University of London, which is a critical element of this story, all spread around Russell Square. And then we have the British Museum, and the British Museum is a critical influence uh, in this domain. And we have certain groups, people are familiar with the Bloomsbury group, because this is Bloomsbury. This is the heart of Bloomsbury. Although we have a Bloomsbury Square, the area is, is, is referred to as Bloomsbury. And we had that, that well-known cliche about the Bloomsbury the people in the Bloomsbury group, that they lived in squares and painted in circles and loved in triangles. It's a, it's a well-known... Uh, now, can you define the Bloomsbury group? Uh, I think many viewers won't know what it is. Yeah, they're a particular group that was associated with the Edwardian period, the Victorian, late Victorian period. Uh, they, were, they were characterized by a few individuals, particularly... The sisters Virginia Woolf and her sister Vanessa Bell, Virginia Woolf, the great writer, and Vanessa Bell, the great and innovative painter who hasn't received the attention that she deserves as a pioneer. But the major influence, apart from uh, individuals like them, and she was married to, to Leonard Woolf, was Cambridge. That the, was the intellectuals from Cambridge. So Bloomsbury is the, is really a a surrogate for Cambridge in London, and that's very very interesting because. Remember that Cambridge was really where the Reformation came from. And that has a significance because if you look at, uh, I haven't been name dropping for a while, Jeffrey, in a but um, a book that was recommended to me by the current president of Ireland when I met him before, uh, at, uh, a very nice man, he, uh, he recommended the stripping of the altars, which is it's not, it's not a great readable book, but it's about the Reformation and the consequence of the Reformation and the, the devastation on the visual image that resulted from that time. Because England, in particular, was one of the most superstitious countries around. They had a lot of interest in ancient lore, 
in images. They were a very superstitious people. And the Reformation destroyed that. And, and insofar as there was an attack on the image associated with that, it has had profound effects since then. And uh, it, it, there's an appro uh, associated shift to concentrating on the word, on the text, on symbols, which we should be borne in mind when we're, when we're talking about this broader discussion. So uh, how is this related now to the crucible there in Russell Square? Well, I, I think there's a profound effect still from the Reformation in, in, in uh, British culture. And I, I think, uh, as we'll talk about in relation to attitudes towards spirituality and, and spiritism, uh, that there is, a, there is a very interesting connection between the image and the text and the privileging of one over the other. Oh, all right. Well, I'm sure we're going to get into it in more detail. But while we're talking about sort of the esoteric and magical side of the Russell Square neighborhood, it just dawned on me that that is where I first met Ted Owens at the University of London in 1976. Well, that is that is that's really incredible. That 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 is incredible. I, I have read your 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 book and enjoyed it, uh, and I never made that a connection. But that that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I gather there are many uh, other magical strains of thought associated with this neighborhood. Well, that is quite remarkable. It really is quite remarkable. And it is remarkable that, that you have had that experience. Another little connection, actually, between Ted Owens, perhaps, and, and is that uh, when I read The Magic Finger uh, uh, with Roald Dahl, uh, because my daughters read it, I was struck by the connection between the magic finger by Roald Dahl and Ted Owens in relation to the power to, it's very interesting, he wrote, I think it was 62. And there's another connection between Roald Dahl and here, because just behind me, we have the Great Ormond Street, and Great Ormond Street was where the children's hospital is. And Roald Dahl, as well as his children's book, one of, one of his uh, children, I think it was Theo, was knocked down in New York and he had a, a, a massive problem with, with, with cerebral uh, fluid and uh, Roald Dahl had a, a lot of problems trying to, to help him. So as a result of that and working with this hospital, he contributed towards developing a shunt for use in neurology to help children in that context, which is quite, quite remarkable. So that's a remarkable example of, of an artist contributing directly towards a, a medical technological context. But as well as that in Great Ormond Street, we have another connection with magic because Peter Pan survives there because the royalties from Peter Pan still go to the Great Ormond Street. And when the copyright was finished in the Peter Pan uh, play, the it was extended by Parliament. So there's a, a, a copyright in perpetuity with the royalties going to the Great Ormond Street because they were donated by J.M. Barry. Now, J.M. Barry came to live in this area, just, just, just behind us a few hundred metres, and that's where the Darlings lived in Brunswick Square. So Peter Pan arrived here as well, and J.M. Barry was going to the British Museum, so he would have wa been walking behind us uh, at some stage, at some uh, stage in history. So if we, if we go around a bit more, we have... Bloomsbury Publishing, and they still have offices, and that's where Harry Potter came into the world. He may have been conceived in Edinburgh, but he was he came into being as a publishing entity uh, from Bloomsbury Publishing. So that's another another literary kind of input. 
We also had Charles Fort, who lived here behind me. And Charles Fort was the great, the great student of anomalies in science. And uh, the Fortian Times refers back to him, and books like The Morning of the Magicians refers back to, to his kind of inputs. And he came here to study at the British Museum uh, again. Uh, if we go a little bit, a few hundred yards uh, over here, we see on the north, we see that the Warburg Institute uh, operates. And the Warburg Institute was set up by A.B. Warburg, who was a refugee from Berlin. And he, his interest was in the study of the image in Western history. And he developed things like the Builder Atlas to try and look at how images changed throughout history and what they were saying to us. And there's a particular interest in the occult and in magic. And so it was from there that we get Frances Yates, who did the great studies on Bruno uh, in particular, and a Renaissance mag magician. She was attached to, to there uh, and associated. It was also Samuel Pickering Walker, who studied about spirits and uh, demonology as well, flowing on from that. So we have a, a great intellectual input. And just on the corner of, of the square, we have Faber and Faber, the great publishers of poetry. And one of the poets associated uh, with this area is Ted Hughes. And Ted Hughes married Sylvia Platt near Russell Square in the church just around the corner. And Ted Hughes was a poet who was a poet magician in my view, and maybe in the magic, tragic tradition in some ways, because there was a lot of tragedy uh, in his life. But he was very, very well informed about magic and studied magic. And he also describes when he was at university having a visitation by a, a fox who was his muse in relation to uh, to poetry. So that, that's another magical connection. But we come around to the the British Museum, and the British Museum, of course, was the home of a lot of the magical orders because in the British Museum, the there used to be the British Library in, in, in the reading room, and many students of the occult and the esoteric, Yeats, etc. Yeats lived up the road. He would have he would have walked behind you there, battering with his cane and, and and talking, reciting poetry to himself. I will arise and go now and go to in the street and all that kind of stuff. And they said, someone said that when he was ordering a cup of tea, if he came in beside us, Jeff, someone said when he was ordering a cup of tea, he'd talk to the waiter as if he was asking for the holy grail to be delivered to him <laughs> so you can, yeah, you can. but so in 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 the british museum the 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 golden dawn associated with this area they, they would have had their been given birth to to some by some of the documents found in 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 the, the library and as well as that in the museum itself we had the egyptian room and of course with that that's still perceived to be haunted still perceived to be plenty of spirits in there and the stories of the mummy, and there was a famous sarcophagus associated with a priestess of Amun-Ra, which, which had a big impact, according to a lot of people, on events outside, the curse of the mummy, etc. Well, that's associated with there, and, uh, and filmmakers have come into the British Museum, Hitchcock and them have used the location. So it's, it's, a, it's a magical context. Uh, a couple more places to mention. On the, on, on the left side, on the south side, where Bedford House was, there's a writer now writing a series of books who's quite popular about London, and he locates a place there called the Folly, which in his view is the centre of magic. So we still see in a contemporary context the idea that magic is based here. And also, 
on Southampton Row behind us, all these names are associated with the, the, the Duke of Bedford and various people that married into, into the family. But Southampton with Earl of Southampton, Southampton Row is here. And Edgar Allan Poe lived there. So once upon a midnight dreary, etc. And remember in, in The Raven, he's thinking about books of forgotten lore, quaint and curious uh, books of forgotten lore. So he was very much into magic. And he had a tragic end as well, which, which, which is quite interesting. But he also, he exposed hoax and he made hoax. He, 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 he published hoaxes, uh, a famous balloon hoax. He was famous as well for exposing an automaton, which actually had a man inside it, the Turk who supposedly, or who did beat people in, in chess. So he was a very astute man. But he was definitely, definitely into magic. Some people think he was a mystic. I don't. I think he, he was, he was a magician. And I think that distinction is, 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 is quite interesting. Um, and of course, he gave birth to detective fiction, science fiction for some people. Uh, and, uh, he, he's an important, he's an important figure to look at. But also in one of his stories, The Imp of the Perverse, although he championed a rational figure, he believed that there would always be the imp of the perverse, the idea that there would be some force which would interact on the rational mind to make it do bad things and to make the bad choice. So if we look at the whole, or the last one, sorry for going on so long, but just the last one to mention on magic. Years ago, I was in a shop just in front of, of the, the museum. And I think it was a man in the shop at the time. He said, I'm going downstairs. So I was in the shop, a small little shop on, on my own. And I felt a finger touching into me between me spine and shoulder blade and I looked around and there was nobody there uh, so I was a bit surprised it felt very like a finger I didn't feel like a spasm or anything else so I left it at that it was a bit of a surprise years after I was in the shop and I was talking to the the, the lady there and I said I told her the story um, and she said well of course this is the great shop where all the magicians came where Crowley came, where Austin Osman Spare came, where the contemporary magicians go, a small little shop called the Atlantis. Uh, and Gerald Gardner used to come there. And not only that, but they, they used to, years ago, perform ceremonies in the basement. So uh, she said there used to be a lot of strange things. There's a very nice woman, well-known in relation to, uh, to the esoteric community and given lectures in those areas. But we also have that connection with Wiccanism. So contemporary or the... The efflorescence of Wiccanism, which is a kind of pagan, nature-loving, uh, esoteric practice, is associated with here. And we have another bookshop called Treadwells, which was was critical. So it is it is a crucible for magic. Sorry for going on so long, uh, Jeffrey, but I couldn't stop myself. Well, th there's so much to say. I know, for example, that the famous Mahatma letters that uh, Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophists claim precipitated from the ceiling by their uh, the masters of Theosophy, who they believe were uh, real, live human beings living in the Himalayas. Those letters were the foundation of the Theosophical movement, and they are kept today at the British Museum. Yes, and the Theosophical uh, Society was, was, was based here, and also the Swedenborg Society is just down the road as well. So all of the esoteric uh, magical functions are represented there. 
And you've also told me earlier that the Society for Psychical Research was originally located in this neighborhood. Well, I've been thinking of it in terms of, say, magic is one, one side of the square, and the other side of the square might be the, the, the spirit, spiritualism. And this, not only would I argue that it's the home of spiritualism in many senses, of course, we have the, in the United States, but in this side of the world, uh, but it, it has had a profound effect on parapsychology. It's probably the home of parapsychology as well. And I'll give you a number of examples of this, the spiritual influence. For example, George Williams, uh, he lived on, on the right-hand side uh, of, just here on the northern side of Russell Square. He founded the YMCA. The YMCA, which uh, we know is, is still very popular worldwide, was also associated in some way with the foundation of the International Red Cross, with the origin of basketball, racquetball, volleyball, bodybuilding. It's quite remarkable. All that came from a man here who was worried about the spiritual condition of young men in London who didn't have enough places to look for their, or to build homes for themselves or to build, have a place to stay. So after their work, they didn't really have any place to go. So because of his desire to improve the spiritual condition, he set up those organizations. So it's, it's a great example. As well as that, Great Ormond Street was set up by another uh, person who was religiously uh, inspired, uh, George West. Uh, he was eventually thrown out, I think, because he wanted to become a Catholic, but that's a different story. But again, they were motivated, despite the, this being a kind of home of empire as well, there was, there was a lot of people, particularly from a Christian background in this context, wanting to do well. In this square, in the 80s, Eckhart Tolle sat for a couple of years, going through a crisis. He used to sit on the bench in, we probably would have seen him if he had been here in the 80s, uh, and he went through a crisis, and this was a crucial part in his changing his view of the world and going on to become a, a famed spiritual teacher. But in relation to spiritualism, there's there's two people that, that jump out. Uh, well, across behind you, I think, was where Evelyn Tennant lived. She was a beautiful young girl, and a lot of the painters wanted to paint her. The pre-Raphaelite movement was founded in the next street on, uh, in Gower Street, and one of them, John Millet, wanted a painter, but other painters painted her too. He did a nice portrait of her with a kind of crimson uh, dress on her, uh, on her. And this painting was exhibited in the Royal Academy. And a man went in with George Eliot, the great writer, and he said, I think I've fallen in love with a woman in that portrait. And he went on to marry her. And that, that man was Frederick Myers. So Frederick Myers married this woman, Evelyn Tennant. Now she became, she used the experience of being painted uh, as a sitter to go on and apply in photography. So she became a renowned early photographer and has taken some great photographs. But Myers, of course, is critical insofar as he established the idea of telepathy or the term telepathy, and he established the imaginal that Corbin and other people would use. So she lived in Russell Square, although uh, they were up in Cambridge, I think. There's another connection right here to this area. And another particular connection is Edward or Sergeant Cox, who lived here, I think, at 36 Russell Square. Now, Cox was critical because he worked with crooks and he was a, a, a bar, Cox was a barrister 
And he was trying to set up terminology that would work in relation to Crookes' idea of studying the force that was there because they believed that there was a force, an extra force, uh, made a force be which there was an extra force there that had to be investigated, which was associated with spiritualism. Now, it came out with the fact that this area was really associated with spiritualism. There was a spiritualist institute down on Southampton Row, and there was at various times in, in the 20th century, there was an association of spiritualists in Russell Square itself, and the headquarters of the British National Association was on Great Russell Street. So, this, it's in the area, this, this spiritualism. And that would have, although people think it came from America, of course we have Blake and Swedenborg in connection, which would explain in a continuous way why it was there, as well as the Moravian Church and the dissenting traditions and the Quakers, who all developed their own kind of spiritual ethos. But Cox was the one who wrote in a letter, I think, 1871, to Crooks, and he said, I think that we should describe this force as the psychic force. And we should describe people that have this force as psychics. And we should describe it as psychism. And the general area is psychology. So in that letter, it's quite remarkable. We have the origin of the ideas of psychic forces from, from Russell Square. He also, in 1875, set up uh, a psychological society. So the connection between... The psyche and the psychic force and psychology is there from the start, but subsequently they have separated that. So it, it, it's kind of a remarkable basis. And of course, the, the Society of Psychical Research uh, was established uh, around the corner in Great Russell Street, or it started off there at least. So uh, we have a remarkable, a remarkable impact of the spirit and also, as we will see, a counterforce from the people that weren't so happy with that. Well, it's worth mentioning that the very name of Russell Square is associated with the family of uh, the great mathematician and philosopher Bertrand Russell, who, who wrote a book I enjoy very much called Mysticism and Logic, which points out that the mystical perspective that I love to emphasize in these programs of all is one that is, is, quite consistent with logic. On the other hand, Bertrand Russell was antagonistic to the uh, position of the spiritualists that we survive after the death of the physical body. Well, in relation to the scientific ethos, which, which, is, which is around here, it is very, very difficult for anyone, in my view, to survive in any way as a philosopher or whatever in this domain without accepting that because there was a great hostility from the scientific community and the spiritualist movement and even the psychical the society of psychical research there was a lot of pressure on it from scientists to change and in many ways it was hobbled from the start in my view they were they were setting impossible standards and it was destined to fail and in some senses because of the the burden of proof being put on it in my view the spirit has existed since time immemorial. The burden of proof was on others uh, to deny it. But they switched the burden of proof so that then you have to prove that you have a spirit. And this, this is something that, that I'm opposing and rejecting. 
Well, I think you're making a crucial point that deserves being emphasized even further. We, we take it for granted that the physical world that we experience through our senses is a given, but really the, the idea of matter and the, the physical world is an assumption we make because uh, we have consciousness first and foremost. Well, in, in the context of this spiritual efflorescence. We also have the literary and artistic uh, efflorescence, which, which is associated with that. Uh, perhaps I could mention that before I, I or to finish off that, or that point, that this view or this conflict between, uh, as you've identified there, about the material world, the nature of the material world, it runs through everything, through all the artistic movements here. And in particular, if we look at figures like Huxley, he was very, very influential because he set up the, or he was associated with the X Club, which was set up in 1863. And they were a group of scientists who were wanting to impose this materialist view and to oppose the spiritualist view. So what happened was they took over uh, the various royal societies and they made it an inhospitable environment for anyone that was advocating anything about, about the spirit. Uh, and, of course, Darwin was... Uh, he, he lived in Gower Street as well here. So this ethos is very, very, very close, the sharp division between them. But uh, Huxley, right from the start, when they were, when they were discussing this uh, and whether he, he, he was invited to join a number of these, but he didn't, he said, even if it's true, I'm not interested in it. So this is, a, this is, this is, this is quite clear evidence of bias uh, in, 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 in this context. And not only that, if we think about the scientific context, some I'm quite critical of science and scientism. Uh, and despite the great achievements, uh, like people like Huxley and that as an anatomist, they, they made some, some big mistakes. For example, critics within science are looking at the contributions that people like Huxley made true institutions like the, the British Museum and the way they saw the outside world to scientific racism. Because in their classification systems, they began to classify people and they began to classify the races. The Irish didn't come out well in these classifications, by the way. And, and if you look at the, 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 the Darwin's correspondent with some of his friends, they didn't speak well about the, the Irish in that hierarchy because they, they were seeing them as low down on the scale of evolution. So this is where a lot of those references uh, uh, comes from. But it was scientific racism uh, in that context. So these are the people that are opposing because they're very, very hostile to the idea that not that the spirit survives, but that you have a spirit at all because they wanted to be in control. They wanted their rationality to exist. They believed there was nothing else. And the consequence of that view is very, very destructive. Well, it's interesting you bring up Thomas Henry Huxley, who was thought of as Darwin's bulldog, a, a very, very strong advocate for Darwinian evolution. His grandson, Aldous Huxley, uh, in fact, uh, before this interview is released, I will release an interview about Aldous Huxley, who was a great champion of uh, spirituality and consciousness, and, and in particular, the use of psychedelics. Well, Huxley is a very interesting figure in this because, of course, my view was that Huxley saw what was happening and he saw the dangers because he was 
able to move in that environment. And his first novel, Chrome Yellow, was about the Bloomsbury set. So he was very well aware of what was happening. So, I mean, the Bloomsbury set, we said that the people from Cambridge, there was a lot of great painters, Duncan Grant and uh, as well, another, another painter. And there was also, for example, a workshop, the Omega workshop, which was uh, at, in Fitzrovia or Fitzroy Square. And there, it was a kind of precursor of the Bauhaus in some way, where they're applying their, their artistic talents to decoration. But so Huxley was very, very familiar with this ethos, but he, he was, he, he could see through it uh, in many senses. And he also, from there, he began to look at the consequences of that viewpoint. And he, he began to understand. And that's where his idea of Brave New World came from, because he is thinking through what the consequence of this view, where you take a Darwinian set and you add into a Malthusian idea that comes after. And, and then you have the idea of eugenics, which was very very well known in this area and you put them all together and you come to a very strange situation and the spirit was left out of that so Huxley survives well in this context and his his reference to the perennial philosophy is the antidote to uh, to this scientism as opposed to the scientific method so it's not about whether we've evolved or whether it's that's not the argument it's about taking and Aurobindo is one who expressed this view. He, he wrote an essay called, uh, Supermanhood and he criticized Nietzscheanism because he, he said that there's a conflict between love on the one hand and power on the other hand. So it's a bit like the right hand path and the left hand path. And he believed that Nietzscheism started off from a position of anger and you had to build yourself up. But in building yourself up, you are going to build yourself up over somebody else and a mastery over somebody else was a critical part of that power structure and love was the country position although Aurobindo wasn't naive so in some senses I don't think for example if you if you ask Aurobindo about Eckhart Tolle he might find that a bit too imbalanced because he believed that you had to be able to negotiate both camps you had to go in some way chart a, a course through the middle and recognize that the two forces were there but there is that that strong clash uh, in this area. And of course, that that comes into the political ethos of the area as well, which is another dimension. The last point on that is that psychology develops in this area. Virginia Woolf with a Hogarth Press, she and her husband, Le uh, Leonard Woolf, they publish Sigmund Freud. And Carl Jung comes to this area, gives his Tavistock lectures in the Tavistock Clinic, which was just up the road, the Tavistock Square, which gave birth to the Tavistock Institute and, and all that. And Samuel Beckett, the Irish writer, Nobel uh, laureate, he came here in 35 and he was here for a couple of years doing psychoanalysis with a man, uh, Walter Bayan, I think. And he went to hear Jung lecture here. So, so it, it's quite amazing that the, we see the continuing of that psychological uh, trend as well in this area. Back to Aldous Huxley for a moment. I'm thinking that he didn't really develop his ideas of the perennial philosophy and the use of psychedelics uh, until he moved from England uh, and settled in Southern California. So I, I wonder actually if he would have been able to have made that switch if it, had he stayed in the Russell Square neighborhood. 
It's a very interesting question. The Bloomsbury group were associated with a certain kind of progressiveness. They were associated with a certain liberation, with sexual liberation, with uh, exploring different types of interrelationships and setups. So they, they let their hair down in that sense. So and there was an element of a that that he was kind of familiar with. But certainly California is a different kettle of fish, and the weather is the weather helps as well. But yes, the, the, he 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 would have had to move out because, in some senses, as a result of this trend, which you can trace back to how long you want, but it's a very strong trend in British culture against against certain elements of spiritual development. It, it is there, and it derives from a very strong concentration on scientism, scientific method, rationality, organization, mechanization, industrialization, all those ideas. And it's, it's, it's intolerant in some ways of spirituality. So he's not going to get his views across in some sense. And if there was more exploration at that time. The cluster had moved. There wasn't, Bloomsbury wasn't that same thing. It was a particular era. And of course, it was destroyed by war. If we take another figure like David Bomber, Bomberg, he was an artist at the Slade. So the Slade is another uh, element here, a famous art school. And he started off early on, he was interested in vorticism, which was an, another movement associated with this area. And when he went to fight in the First World War, he realized that this love of the machine and speed and all that wasn't as uh, all it was cracked up to be. And he changed his direction and became expressionistic and he was a, a great influence and one of his students later on was the great Frank Auerbach. So we see we see this movement and certainly different perspectives had an influence. But I, I think that's right. There were there was particular circumstances and clustering effects elsewhere that uh, that the bee might have flown from one from one uh, flower to another in, in some sense. Well, it's it's interesting. Psychical research and spiritualism thrived in that area, but really as marginal movements, they were, I guess you'd have to say, practically never were they mainstream. Maybe for a few years when Arthur Balfour, uh, who was the prime minister of England and also, I, I think, fair to say, leaned heavily in the direction of spiritualism and was also had been a president of the Society for Psychical Research. But, but that evaporated rather quickly. I would say you have to consider the occult in the sense of something which is hidden. Because as well as those movements we've talked about, there was also, for example, the Ghost Club, where I believe it was only men uh, could come and discuss ghost stories and present stories that had happened to them. And people like Arthur Conan Doyle and all these were, were, were very much into that, as you know. So he's another figure that was, that was important. So there were a lot of people, other people, the upper class, because it was a class issue. A lot of the experiences, if it came from the lower class, they weren't interested in. But the upper class could come and have their ghost clubs. And remember as well that Freemasonry was, is very strong in Britain. And Freemasonry, of course, and Egyptology is a very close connection. So that connection is there. And of course, it's behind closed doors. So a lot of the esoteric concepts can not come into the public di discourse directly. 
as well as the magic orders, some of the magic orders in Britain wouldn't have been revealed if there hadn't been scandals. So scandal is an issue that comes into this context. For example, there was a, a scandal with one of the magical orders uh, where a woman be believed she was sexually assaulted, or a woman said she was sexually assaulted, and that led to a court case. So then it came into the public domain. So that scandal effect is important. And of course, the scientists were always trying to expo expose fraud. So there was exposure of fraud uh, in, in just down the road in, in, in uh, Bedford Place. There was a famous case, a prosecution, which arose out of a false a false practitioner. And these could always be used to denigrate any idea that spirits exist or that, that you had a spirit. And of course, there was the great event in, in the 1830s, there was the mesmerist Eliotson, and he was, he, he was, he, he understood that you could use hypnotism to help patients to relieve pain, and he, and he, he explored it and used it. But he was ousted by the medical profession. They weren't having this for a number of reasons. This is the exact same thing that happened in the 1790s in Gamlestan in Stockholm that we talked about. A mesmerist trying to practice uh, and they were alienated by the scientific community, uh, not very open-minded. So despite the fact that he could demonstrate that you could use this to reduce pain, particularly in the context of operations where they didn't have anesthetics, uh, that uh, he was ousted and, uh, and his career was uh, destroyed. So this tension is a scandals, whatever, it's going on all the, all the time in this area. So the point would be there's a kind of there is a very strong presence. Some people believe that the fact that the society openly committed so much to modernism meant that it came up, it couldn't be kept down, spiritualism in these areas. I think it's a perpetual struggle between two different mindsets and that the, the, the spiritual nature of humanity will always assert itself eventually, despite the fact that it's kept underwater. So you can see all of these threads uh, in this small neighborhood where you used to live in London. It's amazing. But there's more. There's, I mean, just to, just to mention a couple more. Of course, Karl Marx studied, uh, well, he came up from Soho to study in the reading room. Lenin stayed uh, behind. He stayed not only in the Imperial Hotel here, but he, he stayed up in Tavistock Square and he met Trotsky up the road, as we talked about in Esoteric Geography. And uh, Trotsky, they all studied here. So they were, of course, uh, interested in scientific socialism. So there's a scientific dimension as well. And, and opponents, I suppose, people like Hayek, and that would have been down later on, much later on, London School of Economics. We have all, we have all viewpoints manifested. Um, and uh, the road to serfdom and advocating a different view. But they're still all talking about the material world. And Bernal, who wrote uh, the book we talked about last time about the world, the flesh and the devil, he lived off Russell Square. So he was arguing for that scientism, that scientocracy. And of course, H.G. Wells lived just here as well. So the, the found, one of the founders of science fiction, he lived here as well. So, so that ethos was very strong, and this is why people like Huxley notice it, why C.S. Lewis notices it as well. And Mary Shelley lived up the road, and her mother, of course, Mary Wollstonecraft, who I've been to her grave a few times, and she was, as we know, a great 
feminist, a great writer, a great, uh, a great stylist. Now, she died in, in childbirth when Mary Shelley was born, and she died uh, uh, with childbed fever, as they called it. And an interesting and sad fact about that was child, that fever was spread by the physicians not washing their hands at the time. And there's studies of this, this fact that it was the medical profession who were spreading the germs that led to this particular type, an horrific type of, of fever, uh, and in the Cambridge Journal of Medical History, I think, which, which explained that the reason why this view persisted and the practice persisted was because they had a very particular rational view of the causes of these diseases, which was wrong. It was only later when people like Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. in the United States began to establish the connection that they adopted. So again, we have, we have this warning about the dangers of over-reliance on a rationalist view, which says, show me purely empirical, materialistic, not looking at other dimensions, not questioning itself, not having higher objectives. So, so, so that, that tension is there between the materialist world and, and, and the spiritual world, and it's still ongoing. Well, I think there's a certain arrogance and perhaps a, a class structure associated with it as well. You, you would think that in those days, uh, even without the knowledge of germ theory uh, developed, I guess, later by Louis Pasteur, that it might occur to doctors who are uh, dealing in childbirth to wash their hands anyway, simply for the sake of their patient. Yes, and there was another unfortunate factor this was a period where we had a professionalization of the, of the of childbirth so whereas the classical midwife may have never she would have never gone near a dead body as these did before they went near their patients going from autopsies into you know childbirth uh, the, the, the midwives would never have done this thing the profession the professional uh, and male surgeons the new era had that arrogance that you talked about and this is this is part of the imperial idea and associated with that the ideas of superiority which was helped by the anthropologists sometimes because tyler came down to to witness seances in russell square as well he, he wasn't very happy with them he wasn't very disposed to them because that wasn't consistent with the world view that they had but my argument is that a deeper argument that the imperial structure that was there and the imperial mindset has transmuted into an empire of scientism. That what we have to fear is the idea that we are going to face an empire of scientism where we have a predominance of a kind of uh, scien scientistic, not science, a scientific view that they know better, that they uh, they are beyond, they are the highest form of knowledge. There is no competing form of knowledge. That it's only about objectives. It's only about em empirical facts. It's only about things that are proven. And things that are not proven don't exist. That's what, that's, that's the implication uh, of scientism. And that, that's, that's manifested on, on, on uh, around here. And there's another point that I have to mention. Be, uh, I don't want to forget it, but uh, there was a, a great series the Ascent of Man by with, with Jacob Branowski. And in that, although he was advocating science through the whole lot, he came to Auschwitz, and it was a very moving scene at the end, and they didn't 
they didn't, uh, they ad-libbed on that. They, they, he said he was going to do it once and it, it was very difficult for him because his family had, had been at Auschwitz. And he makes a plea in that, a, a plea against uh, intellectual arrogance. And he seems to direct it as well against scientists and against this view of the, the kind of itch of power, the itch to find out an answer to things. And he knew about these things because he had seen the consequences in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and he was friends with Leo uh, Zillard. Now, the, the connection is that Leo Zillard was staying in the hotel behind me here, and he, he had his breakfast, and he read the paper, and he read about Rutherford, I, I think, and his theory about how things work. And he was crossing the road just here on Southampton Row, and he was waiting for the, the light, 1935, and then the answer came to him about nuclear chain reaction. And as far as I can see, there's different reports of it, but at that point here, he understood the consequences and how you could cause a nuclear chain reaction. And also he understood the consequences of that for the world. So it's kind of remarkable, again, from, from this crucible, but it underlines the idea that no no form, no dogma uh, can be critical and, and can be so determinative that it thinks it knows everything. And in that sense, we have to be very, very careful. I'm in favor of science, but we have to be careful that we don't create a new religion of science with a new church of science and a new priesthood of science. And we don't uh, look down on, on every other viewpoint and we don't have respect for other viewpoints. And that's, that's kind of what Huxley was worried about as well and why he, in my view, was emphasizing the perennial philosophy because all peoples around the world have understood about the significance of these values, which are transcendent values, and that objectives and goals and instrumentality can't be undirected. They have to be directed towards, towards higher goals in that sense. Well, James, there are so many cultural threads that you've been able to identify here in the Russell Square area. We could continue this conversation for a long, long time. And in fact, I, I hope that we do uh, have many more interviews because there's so much more to bring out here. But uh, for today, is there anything else you'd like to add before we close? I'm going to beg your indulgence here, uh, Jeff, because I was a bit inspired to write uh, a poem about Russell Square. So if you give me a few minutes, I'll read it for you. It's, it's, uh, and you're the first person that, have, that, have, that has heard it. So uh, it'll take me about five minutes, if you don't mind. If, if the, love to hear it. I would love to hear it. Again, forgive, indulge me for it's five minutes, but you might be watching advertisements on television for that or the news or some old rubbish. So uh, you, you can... Uh, you can give it a go, and especially as well because you've been talking about poetry. It's been recently. It's 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 coming up. I noticed you talked about it the other day, and I believe you you mentioned about a an interview coming up with your cousin about poetry. Before this one is released, that one will have been great. And also, when we're talking about the the clusters and the cultural movements, of course. T.S. Eliot was on Russell Square in Faber and Faber. Let us go then, you and I, well, when the evening is spread out against the sky like an eaterized patient upon the table. So 
he, he, he was on Russell Square as well, so poetry is in the air, and poetry was in the places where you have been with Ginsberg and all the other folk poets and the beat poets, and, and, and it's in the cluster as well. So, um, uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get going. It's called uh, Hierophants of Russell Square. Who are we and how to see surely now an end of line, machines becoming machines of late or pure spirits becoming divine? A fault or fissure in our psyche to cure runs through here, more potent than tectonic plates or a million suns to engender fear. From this crucible and crossbones colonizing, technotronic Golgotha alone awaits a last realizing. While curiosity may have killed some poor old cat, alas, perhaps consequences are much worse than that. I saw a flock of speckled starlings reeling in air, hither and thither at day's close over a darling square, individual shimmering interest yet burning with common accord, thick above web and net aligned with immaterial cords. Turning like this gorgeous rubic cubes of dimensions from Bloomsbury of George to imperial Victorian pretensions. Like round the wheel's axle this place woke what many minds saw born through its spokes. How many lay at night in those torn bushes touched with frost, awaiting lips enchantments with hope sight lost? All might feel that sharp hex or grey rhyme of our human condition as an inward vortex points hypnotically to perdition. And what conjured Zeppelin now surreptitiously sails in ink to silently drop what only Daedalus and Icarus could think. Underground here in 63, spores were spread not by strangers, but by top public bodies to see and spell the dangers. Up there in 24, Elliot battered elegantly away, squeezing mesmerizing insight from mundane day. A red rose to his love in the hotel after labor, leaving poetic delights of favor and favor. Was he a mystic while Hughes a magician, feeling an emotion or not for the logician? Heaney fell into a mythic underground cavern, becoming Orpheus or Hansel after the museum tavern. Teeming British Museum with Egyptian spirit full, seeming to exert on minds an ancient pull. Seat of brave muses, curses or raven alighting, seeks to amuse us, hiding graves, goddess and craven contemporaneousness. Crowley and Gardner, brows and Atlantis, invoking angels, elementals and praying mantis. Tolle sat here trying to work out his way for us, seeking peace beyond the Narcissan sarcophagus. There Eveline sat in psychic forces wrapped in liminal sigils, imaginal images trapped. I see ghost paths, signs, tell of psychopathy, imperilous psychogeography of telepathy. Spirit syncopation to empirical savants causes consternation and sycophants. Others dwelt here and dreamt perchance how spiritual condition could be enhanced. Lennon maybe had ordered toast and marmalade in the Imperial Hotel over there where he stayed. Marx once and then Trotsky walked here planning a future utopia over the red ocean spanning. Sauntering and pale sunlight visions spring from single minds that think they know everything. While Hayek rejected the road to serfdom hiding his spirit in material kingdom come. On the roof, after a green meteor shower, unblinded survivors planned in the tower against plants that could before them kill all, another costly concoction to appall. In that Senate house the ministry resided that Orwell used where truth presided. Darwin lived beyond where the actors go, finding evolution in bird and beak, beak and bird toe. H.G. Wells crisscrossed here as he too planned a world run by a scientific band. From Mars came the machines just up the road to Little Englanders and tradition to gold. Frankenstein seen by Mary Shelley who came from nearby, her mother in fever too, for reasons fever had to die. Nuclear Chain reaction seeds sowed as Leo prepared to cross the road. Haunting the street, Virginia with Freud in her head past, lighted windows where Jung would teach as Violet fell fast. 
Poe pondering the darkest reaches, wondering what an imp of the perverse teaches. The rational known mystically sometimes preached what something he knew could never be reached. Over beef and sherry, the Ratio Club and Queens worked out how to manage all the unseen. Turing's work on the electronic brain by heartless machine ended in pain. Bernal worked out the future for us, a docile population flung under the bus. Harry Potter was brought into the world here. Peter Pan survived in Ormond Street near. Francis Yates brought Bruno back to life. William Butler needed to escape the strife of scientific magicians who fight for control, not happy without having the whole, who'll sacrifice you on the way for your inattention making you pay. The magic empire of scientism must turn spiritual evolution into pixie dust. So find your own magic within you. Imagination can set the globe on fire. Otherwise, we invite a tragic human zoo. But first yourself, inspire to aspire. Your consciousness is charm of great treasure, illimitable light and beautiful beyond measure. By entering the stream, we can again dream, make beauty and life potential all it seems. Is Gandhi's form looking down at gift flowers, stone, spirit hawk and the rain that powers? Blake, Swedenborg, Underhill are more grand who did not want for us the wasteland. So look inside and examine your Rosetta stone, fearless let us fly in hand, beyond any race or nation, with spirit class, beyond times, sand, space, you are never alone. Rewrite the future with grace in a mystic murmuration. Your spirit is shattered by reason, a blackbird sang on a tree. With bamboozling of your mind, watch for tyranny, unfunny gestures, leading emotions are kings reading divination from scripts, knowing all things. Nuke makers and spore breeders complete our new saviours, ready to treat our kind's messy human behaviours. But you are the elite, sown with spiritual consciousness, sometimes needing to find your own preciousness. That's it. There's so much in that poem, James. Thank you so much for, not just for being with me but for for being you 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 bring so much to the table thank you for the opportunity jeff it's it's, it's great as always to i enjoyed our conversation and for those of you watching or listening thank you for being with us <laughs>